0: invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are in a series called Christ is King. How many believe that? Amen. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules over his kingdom, uh, kingdom world without end. And he doesn't just rule up in heaven somewhere. The Bible says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And As we're moving through Matthew's gospel, we're here in in Matthew chapter 5, which is part of Jesus' sermon on the mount. Jesus explaining all about life, explaining what life in his kingdom is to look like. If he is the king, he has the right to say, this is how my kingdom looks, this is how my kingdom Functions and for those who are a part of his kingdom, th- this sermon really is the blueprint, if you will. It-, it really is our marching orders from our king about how we should think and how we should live and how we should act and, and what we should value and-, and the character that we should have. And last week we looked at the passage that we're looking at again today. We're spending some several weeks on this passage just because it is so important and it is so pivotal. And because there is so much to cover, I want to just jump right in this morning. But I will say that if you uh, were not here last week, if you missed last week, uh, to go on our website and, and to try and catch... Uh, last week's message. I don't say that often, though I believe it's always true, but especially uh, this series that we're working through on this particular part of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, because if if we don't grasp what Jesus is talking about here, we won't rightly understand everything that comes after it, everything that comes after it. And so this is the key to To not only understanding the Sermon on the Mount, this passage here is the key to to understanding the whole rest of the New Testament. Everything that comes after this point uh, needs to be rightly understood in light of what Jesus is teaching here. And so let's look at it again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus speaking, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least In the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the words of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that you have revealed to us. Lord, without your word, we would be in darkness. Without your word, we would be left up to our own understanding and our own attitudes and our own philosophies and our our own version of the truth, which is distorted, which is perverted, which is, is skewed in so many different ways. But Lord, you have spoken and you have given us your word and you have revealed yourself to us. To us, you have revealed the truth to us so that we might not stumble around in darkness, but that we might walk in the light. Lord, you've revealed yourself to us in the Word made flesh, in the person of your Son Jesus, the, the, the fullest expression of the Father. Lord, as we spend time in your Word today, we, we look to Christ. We look to Him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. We look to Him that For the joy set before him went to the cross and died in our place. We look to him as the the perfect substitute, as the offering for sin. We look to him as the one who died and rose again. We look to him as the one who is seated at your right hand right now as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, help us here now, down here on the earth, Lord, to, to live out the purpose for which You've created us to live, Lord, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives, Lord, in our hearts, in our community, in in our workplaces, in our families, that your kingdom would be established. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I could pray all day, but we got to get into this this morning. Okay, so over the last few weeks, I've I've wrestled uh, quite a bit on how to teach this text. And I haven't wrestled on the meaning of the text or the interpretation of the text. It's actually very clear. But I I have wrestled through how to teach it in a way that is helpful. Because this subject, Christ and the law, and the Christian and the law, it is a very vast subject. And I don't want to overwhelm everybody, which would be very easy to do. And so what we're doing is we're spending some weeks on this for a couple different reasons. The first is because it is so important. It is so critical. Uh, again, th- this understanding of this text sets the trajectory of our whole Christian life so that if we're off by just a few degrees, as we end up walking out our faith and what we believe, we will find that, that we could be way off in our hearts and in our lives of what we believe to be true about God, about Christ, and about the world that we live in. It is that important. And so we're spending some several weeks to to really uh, put these truths down deep into our hearts. And in fact, where Jesus goes from here, if we don't understand what he's saying here, we won't understand the rest of what he's saying. What he teaches for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is, is a preaching on an exposition of God's law, the law of God. And so if we don't rightly understand what he's saying here, we won't rightly understand what comes after this, which is his teaching on God's law. But secondly, the reason why we're spending several weeks in this is to to chop this up into bite-sized portions that can be hopefully easily digestible by you. I don't want to give you so much that you are not able to to absorb it because it's so important that this truth is absorbed into your Christian life. Life And that you can take it and digest it and we can walk it out and make it part of our Christian lives from here on out. Now there are volumes that could be said on this topic and I'll, I just acknowledge up at the beginning that as we talk about Christ and the law and in the relationship of the Christian to the law, I am going to leave you with unanswered questions. That is absolutely inevitable. I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you may have. Uh, that, to, to, unless we just want to spend hours and hours and weeks and weeks. But if you have unanswered questions, I'm, I'm happy to try and, and answer them for you individually as, as we can. I'm, I'm happy to do that. But I will say this. On the topic of, of, of this issue of Christ and the law and our relationship to the law, the Apostle Paul dedicates nearly two entire books to the topic. The book of Romans and the book of Galatians are are this issue fleshed out for us. In fact, in Romans, Paul uses the word law, speaking of the law of God, he uses that word 78 times in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, which is only 16 chapters, the book of Romans, which is less than 1% of our Bibles, uses... 20% of the usage of the word law in our Bibles, 20% of the usage of the word law in our Bibles is in the book of Romans, which is only 1% of our Bibles. That is the subject. How does this relate to Christ and to us? So I would say for unanswered questions, I'm happy to answer them for you as best as I can, but I would also encourage you to study the book of Romans. Amen. And so last week, I said I wanted to answer three questions from this first section. We see that this passage is broken into two sections. First, Christ and the law in the first two verses. And secondly, us and our relationship to the law in the last two verses. And from these first two verses, there's three questions I want to answer. And last week, I I did my best to answer one of them. And that was this. What was Jesus' view of the law and the prophet's? The Law and the Prophets, which describes the Old Testament Scriptures, what did Jesus believe about them? And if you'll recall, I, I shared three things with you from this text. The first is that Jesus believed that the Old Testament Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, number one, that they were true, that they were true, that he believed that, that what, what it says in there actually happened, that they weren't myths, there weren't fables, that it was God's truth. Secondly, I I showed you that not only did he believe that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures were true, but secondly, that he believed that they were good, that they were good, that there are those today in Christianity who, who would call themselves Christian who would want to call into question the truthfulness and the goodness of the Old Testament scripture to try and drive a wedge between the New Testament and the Old Testament in such a way to divide and divorce Christianity from what came before it so that we would in no way feel obligated to have to in any way observe or submit to the commandments of God, that we could live life unto ourselves. And what I wanted to show you was that this was not Jesus' view at all of the Old Testament Scriptures. That Jesus taught that, number one, they were true, number two, that they were good, and number three, that they were abiding. Abiding. That they were still in effect, that they were still in full force. And I pointed to where Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot, not one stroke of the pen, not one dotting of the eye, not one crossing of the T will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. And so therefore, God's law stands today. And so if we are to be true followers of Christ, we must, as followers, as disciples of Christ, we must share the same view of the Old Testament that he shared. I cannot say I follow Christ and say I want nothing to do with the Old Testament. That's not the way that it works. That's last week's sermon. Go watch it. It'll bless you. Today, I want to answer two more questions. The first is, in what way did Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? In what way did Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? And number two question I want to answer today is, how does Christ's fulfillment impact our lives today? So, in the text, Jesus says, I did not come to... Abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. To fulfill them. So, what what does it mean when Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Let's start with the prophets first. That's a lot easier to deal with, It's, it's much easier to see, it's much simpler to understand. How did Christ fulfill what the prophets had spoken? Well, Matthew's already shown us several examples of this already in his gospel. In fact, to this point in the first four chapters, six times Matthew has already shown us that in the life of Christ he is fulfilling what the prophets spoke about the Messiah, about the Christ who was to come. Flip over back with me to Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. Speaking of how Jesus was conceived, speaking of where Jesus uh, was to be born. Speaking of all of the situations surrounding Jesus' birth, in Matthew 1, 22, Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. And then here, here he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another example in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. When the, the kings come to, to pay homage to the king of kings, when, when the, the wise men, when the magi come and, and they meet with King Herod and they say, Where is he who's the king of the Jews? Kind of a funny question to ask the king of the Jews, right? Where is he who's born king of the Jews? Where is the king of kings? Where's the real Messiah? Where's the real king? they said to King Herod. So they go and they search and they come back and in verse five it says, they told them in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Here he quotes from the prophet Micah, chapter five, verse two. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We see as Jesus... Has to flee to Egypt with his his father and stepfather and mother. That that was prophesied. We see that in uh, Matthew chapter two verse fifteen. We see in Matthew chapter two verse seventeen again. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again in in Matthew chapter uh, two verse twenty three. That he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, and that was. Uh, spoken by the prophet, it might fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He must be a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, speaking of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. All of these, over and over and over again, Matthew has been telling us that Jesus is the one who fulfills what was spoken by the prophet's. The prophets had spoken. God had sent them into the world to declare to the people of Israel, this is who the Messiah will be. This is what he will be like. This is where he will be born. This is what he will do. This is how he will die. In accurate detail. That he would be pierced. That he would be crushed. That he would be killed on a cross. Describing crucifixion some 700 years before it was invented that he would die that he would be placed in a tomb and that he would rise again from death all of this predicted all of this foretold by God through the prophets so how does Jesus fulfill the prophets well he did what he what they said he would do over 300 predictions in the old testament scriptures describe in accurate detail, to the, some of it to the most minuscule of detail, how the Christ would live, where he would be born, how he would die, how he would be betrayed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, Jesus talks about how everything he did in his life was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. So how did Jesus fulfill what was spoken by the prophets? He did what they said the Messiah would do. So so what this means for us is that we can know many different things. One, that God is sovereign over all things. Number two, that God sees the future. That God plans the future. That God foreordains the future. That God can tell us what the future is before the future happens. That the future is not a surprise to God. How many of you are happy about that? Yeah. That he holds the future. That he, As Ephesians chapter 1 says, that he is working all things in accordance with the counsel of his will that he can use even what the enemy means for evil, that God has predestined and planned it for good. The most evil event that's ever taken place was the crucifixion of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. But through that evil, God is accomplishing salvation and life for the world. All of these things we can know by what the prophets have told us. And Jesus fulfilled them. By doing what what they said he would do. That's how he fulfilled the prophets. Now, the law. How did Christ fulfill the law? And this one is not quite as simple. It's not quite as clear cut. Because the prophets singularly spoke about Christ. It's very clear how he fulfilled the prophets. It's very easy to see the way that it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Christ by his life, his death, his resurrection, all the things that he accomplished. But the law, by virtue of what it is, isn't as simple because it's more complex than simply predictions about the future. The prophets described Christ, and so what they said applied to Christ singularly as there's only one Messiah. It's him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. The prophets and what they spoke, it applied to him. But the law, the law not only applies to Christ, but the law of God applies to humanity. And so now we have Christ fulfilling the law. And how does that collide with and interact with our lives as people who are accountable to God for our lives. The law not only applied to Christ, the law also applies to us. And so the law, when, when, when we are talking about the law of God, we're talking about primarily, again, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, what's called the Torah, that these five books of Moses were, were written by Moses, and they tell the the story uh, specifically as you get into the Exodus, the story of God setting his people free from slavery, from oppression in Egypt. Of course, all of this is in pictorial form of the salvation that we have in Christ, that though we were under the oppression of the devil, the oppression of sin, under the taskmaster of Satan, that Christ has set us free That he is the Passover lamb that was slain. His blood applied to our lives. And and that death has passed over us because he died in our place. That that just as as they celebrated the Passover, the children of Israel, and and were set free from from Egypt. that, That they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. That those waters closing in behind them saying that they could never go back to slavery, that they could never go back to bondage, that they could never go back to Egypt. So we too pass through the waters of baptism. being being Representing the, the, the blood that was applied to our lives, that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and, and telling us that there is no going back to the world. That there's no going back to sin and no going back to Satan, no going back to shame, no going back to oppression, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. That they walk out into the wilderness where they are sustained by God for 40 years. That wilderness represents, guess what? Where we are right now in the story. And God in the wilderness, He sustained His people. He fed them. He clothed them. He provided for them. He provided for their every need. And you know what they said? Oh, thank you, God, for your provision. No, what did they do? They grumbled, they complained. I know none of us can relate to that at all. In the wilderness, he also gave them his word. Gave them his word, his law to teach them how they were to be governed under God as their king. Tonight, uh, Pastor Mark's going to bring a message about, from the book of 1 Samuel about the nation of Israel rejecting God because they want an earthly king. I'm not going to preach his message. You have to come here tonight to hear it, but it's going to be good. God was to be their king, so God gave them his law. How his people were to be governed as a nation. Of course, here in the new covenant, God has given us his word in the scripture, but also his word made flesh. The incarnation, Christ. We have Christ what they had in types and shadows, what they had in pictorial form, what they had in in vague, trying to see the outline of the Savior, we have it in 3D. We we have it in the flesh. The Word made flesh. This law that God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, Jewish rabbis in that law have identified 613 commandments in that law. And that law, that 613 commandments can be divided into three main categories. I want to talk about those this morning because it's important for us to see how Christ fulfilled the law as it relates to these categories of the law. So first we see the moral law of God. God declaring what is good and what is evil. What you need to know and understand about the moral law of God is this that it's not arbitrary. It's not just arbitrary rules that God just came up with one day. The moral law of God, what God declares to be good and what God declares to be evil, is an expression of his nature. It is an expression of his character. It is an expression of who he is, who God is as a person. The moral law of God cannot be changed, and neither can the ceremonial law, and neither can the civil law, the next two laws. But the moral law of God, what God declares to be good and evil, is an expression of his heart. It is an expression of his nature and of his character. So, for an example, an example of this is uh, in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is the most succinct telling of the moral law of God. You could view it as a summary of the moral law of God. In the Ten Commandments, one of them is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. Well, how is that an expression of God's nature and character? Well, God cannot lie. He cannot lie. He will not lie. Everything that God ever says is absolutely the truth, period. And so the the moral law of God is is an expression of his nature, an expression of his character that, that we are to live out under his rule and reign as king and best expressed in the Ten Commandments. The civil law, or what's sometimes called the judicial law, was examples of how God's moral law would be lived out in the nation of Israel in the time after God brought them into the promised land. So the moral law of God, how do we live this out? How do we live out these laws, which are good, the Bible says, What does it look like to live out these laws in relationship to one another? That's the civil law or what's called the judicial law. And I'm going to deal with that mostly next week. And then thirdly was the ceremonial law or what's sometimes called the sacrificial law. And this showed and answered the question of how humanity that is sinful can be purified of sin and live in a relationship with God who is holy. That's what the ceremonial law, the the sacrificial law, it dealt with the the sinfulness of man. You see, for God to covenant with and enter into relationship with sinful humanity, sin must be atoned for. There, There must be a price paid for sin. And so God establishes the ceremonial law or the sacrificial system So that humanity can be purified and therefore enter into covenant relationship with God who is holy. Now at this point I need to say that God's law, and this is important, was never set forth as a means of salvation through rule keeping. I need to say that again. The moral law of God, the law of God in the the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, God's law was never set forth as a means by which any human could attain salvation through rule keeping. That was never God's intent. That's where the Pharisees went off, and we'll deal with that later, But it was always set forth as a way to atone for man's sin through substitution. And the point of the law was to show man's sinfulness and need for a substitute and need for a savior and the need to be cleansed. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 3 quickly. Romans chapter 3. Again, I told you that the book of Romans is really Paul's unpacking this for 16 chapters. But I want to look at just a, a couple verses here that illustrate this point. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now, he, verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Just listen to that here for a moment, that through the law of God, the whole world is accountable to God. Verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight. That is in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I don't know how to say this any better than what Paul says here. That no one is justified by keeping the the commandments of the law. Because none of us have kept the commandments of the law. And so built into the law of God was a system by which lawbreakers could be forgiven of their law breaking. The sacrificial system didn't come in later after God gave them the law and said, oh my goodness, they can't keep this. Well, what am I going to do? Well, I'll come up with this sacrificial system. No, they were given at the same time. Because for generations before the law was even given humanity had been transgressing God's moral law over and over and over and over again. And so God gave his law written on tablets of stone so that humanity could see very clearly their sinfulness before God who is holy and in their sinful condition could recognize their need to have their sin atone for. That is the purpose for the law of God to show us our need for a Savior. Amen. We all have sinned. We all have transgressed God's law. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. One more quickly while we're here in Romans. Romans 7 7 just another example of this. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. That that the law opens up for us. The law opens our eyes to our sinful condition. That's the job of the law of God. If it were not for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. So, so this is the purpose, one of the purposes of the law, is to show us our sinfulness and our need to have our sin atoned for. It was never designed as a means of salvation through rule keeping. It was always designed as a system of substitute for law breakers and to show us our sinfulness and to point us to the Savior who would atone for our sin. Again, this is why when the law was given, the sacrificial system was given as well. So, how did Christ fulfill the law? Let's first talk about the moral law of God. What is good and what is evil? Christ kept the moral law of God perfectly. This is how he fulfilled the moral law of God. By never once sinning. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted, invited into sin, tempted to sin at every point just as we are yet without sin. Jesus in his life as he debates with the Pharisees in the Gospel of John, he he will put this to them and he, he will say, show me any way that I have sinned he says my life is an open book go ahead show me how I have sinned and nobody in the crowds nobody who hears him say that can say I can tell you how you sinned." that's that's staggering if you went to your family if you went to the people around you and said how have I sinned they'd have a list of 10 things boom 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 From last week. (laughs) Jesus opens his life to the multitudes and says, which one of you accuses me of sin? Not one person could say anything because Christ never sinned. He perfectly obeyed God's law. The moral demands of the law of God were met by Christ." Though we have all transgressed God's law, he kept all of the commandments perfectly, perfectly. He never once sinned. That's our Jesus. Perfect obedience, perfect submission to the Father by obeying the Father's word, by obeying the law of God. So this is how Christ fulfilled the moral law of God. How did he fulfill the ceremonial or the sacrificial law of God? Well, the law demands and the law prescribes that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death and Christ fulfilled the law in this respect, the ceremonial and sacrificial... He fulfilled the law by dying the death that the law prescribes. He took the penalty of the law for sin upon himself. The death that the law of God prescribes for sinners, Jesus died that death. And in doing so, he fulfilled all of the sacrificial system in The law. And Jesus is, as John the Baptist declares Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God under the law of God had to be spotless, had to be perfect, had to be without blemish, had to be without disease. It couldn't be lame. It couldn't be maimed. It had to be a perfect, spotless lamb. And Jesus was that perfect lamb, sinless, spotless, not touched by disease, not touched by decay, not touched by the the sinful state of humanity, He was born under the law, but he perfectly kept the law. His life of perfect obedience he kept for God, but he kept himself from sin for us so that he could give his life to ransom us lawbreakers back to God. Because if Jesus had sinned, if Jesus had been sinful he would not have been able to fulfill the demands of the law of God, the sacrificial law of God. He could not have been our substitute if he himself had been sinful because he would have been dying and atoning for his own sins. But because he never sinned, he could have our sins laid upon him. And so in the Old Testament all of the offerings and all of the rituals and all of the sacrifices they were to point to Christ and his fulfillment of them. And that when Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin, he fulfilled all of the sacrifices. He fulfilled all of the ceremonies. He fulfilled all of the rituals. So that those of us who are in Christ can share in the righteousness that only he can give. The book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that Christ's sacrifice was the final sacrifice. That when he died and shed his blood that there is no longer another sacrifice for sin. So apart from Christ, there is no atonement. Apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. Apart from the blood of Christ, if you have not put your faith in him, you are in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. That that there is only one way of atonement, only one way of salvation, and that is through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews gives a masterful illustration of this. I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to give a lot of commentary on it. But I want you to just think about this in context of Christ fulfilling the law. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they, those sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You see, on the Day of Atonement, every year, the people of God would watch, would gather, as the sacrificial lamb would be slain in their place, and the blood of the lamb applied to To the altar, blood of the lamb spilt and and shed. And every year they would have to watch it. And every year they would have to remember, it's my sin that's being atoned for. Their their consciences would not be purified of sin. Because they would constantly be watching and reminding, being reminded of all of these sacrifices. But our consciences have been purified of sin. Because of the once for all finished work of Christ. That's the argument he's making here. When he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, he's going to talk here in verse 11 about the priests under the law, the sacrificial system. Every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those whom are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for, af- for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law, He fulfilled the sacrificial law on the cross. What did He declare? It is finished, it is done, it is complete. And so what, what does bringing this home today, what does this mean, his fulfillment of the law, his keeping of the moral law, the, I delight to do your will, O God. I offer up my body as a sacrifice for sin. How does this impact our lives today? Because Christ said he came to fulfill the law in Matthew chapter 5. Yet he said I didn't come to abolish the law. And so how, how can the law be fulfilled and not abolished? How can the law be fulfilled and yet stand today? The word that, that Jesus used for fulfill, it actually means to put into full force that the law of God finds its full completion in Christ, that the law of God accomplishes its intended perf- purpose perfectly in Christ. So God's law, it still stands today. It still stands in full force to show us our sinfulness, to show us, those of us who are not in Christ, our need for a savior, our need to have our sins atoned for, our need for a substitute, our need to have our sins forgiven. It shows us, it stands in full force today to show the sinner their need for a savior. And we are all in one of two families. We are either in Christ and his family who perfectly fulfilled the law of God or we are in Adam. The one who rebelled against God and the one who broke his law. There are only two families. We are either in Christ or we are in Adam. If we are in Christ... His perfect obedience to God's law is imputed to us as righteousness. is, is credited to our account as, us, as if we fulfilled the law of God perfectly ourselves. This is why the gospel is called good news. Because though we are all law breakers, in Christ we are law keepers. Though we have all transgressed God's moral law in Adam, in Christ we have fulfilled the law of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, last passage today. I'm going to read it quickly. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Our flesh is weak. We transgress the law of God. We are sinful But God has accomplished something for us by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Again, Jesus was human, but he did not sin. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hear this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If we are in Christ, his perfect obedience is credited to our account as righteousness received by faith as a gift of grace. If we are not in Christ, we stand condemned in our sins under God's righteous law. Christ's perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet without sin. And his righteousness has been imputed to us. So, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? The good news of the gospel is that everyone who would call on Christ, who would trust in Christ in faith, would receive the benefits of his work of salvation for us. That's the good news. It's a gift of grace. That means unmerited favor. It means we don't work for it. Our own good deeds, our own good works, our own efforts, filthy rags. The law shows us that clearly. The law stands over us telling us we have sinned. But we have an advocate with the Father. We we have Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have the one who gave himself for us who died to redeem us. The Bible tells us that the reason he did that was because he loved us. Because he loved us. In this is love, the Bible says. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Are you in Christ today? I pray that you are. I pray that you know the joy that comes from having your sins forgiven. If you are in Adam today, you can be set free. You can be set free from the oppression of sin. You can walk in freedom today. The righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in you as you walk not according to the flesh but according to God's spirit. You can be set free today. There's freedom today. For those who trust in Christ. Amen? I invite you to stand with me this morning. I invite the worship team to come, and we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Lord's Supper is a time where we remember how Christ fulfilled the law for us. We remember what he did for us. We remember how he was obedient where we were not. We remember how he died for us so that we could live and live eternally. It's a time of remembering. It's a time where we stir ourselves up in the love of Christ. It's also a time for us as believers where we examine our hearts. We say, Lord, if, if there's anything in my life that's unpleasing to you, I, I give it to you. I lay it at your feet. It's a time for us to renew our commitment to the Lord. It's a Time for us to renew our faithfulness to living for him. But we don't come to this table Because we are worthy, we come to our table, this table, because He died to open for us an invitation. All of us do not deserve to share in the riches of Christ, but He welcomes us to share in the work that He has done for us because of His great love. And so we have a destiny, what's called an open table. The table is open to all who profess faith in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. Lord, though we have all sinned and fallen short, your son took our sin upon him and died the penalty that the law demanded the darkest day the world has ever known Lord we thank you that through faith in your work on the cross that our sins are forgiven and that we do not stand before you condemned but we stand before you justified righteous whole and redeemed and because of your resurrection we stand before you alive to live for you lord we remember your work as we come to the table this morning with hearts filled with thanks and gratitude in christ's name we pray Amen.